thank the church here for a delightful weekend, for your kind invitation, your warm and loving fellowship, and for your rich encouragement. We are very humbled by all of the kindness is shown to us this weekend, and it's done our hearts good to be in worship with you again, and it's just a, always a joy to come here to Bethel Church. I hope you know that you have something very special here, not only in your uh, pastor's pulpit ministry, but in the fellowship I see within the congregation here. It's a dear group of people to our hearts, and we thank you for your love that you've shown to us so steadily over the years. I call your attention this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 4 as we think together on the theme, the message of the hour. 2 Timothy chapter 4, reading beginning in the first verse. <clears throat> I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. In his second epistle to Timothy, the Apostle Paul gives his young son in the faith some very important advice as he is ready to sign off the scene of life. Second Timothy has been called Paul's swan song. And it is likely the last letter that he wrote before he was beheaded by Nero on the Ostian Way outside the city of Rome in approximately 68 AD. Timothy was a timid soul, timorous soul. And we know that early in this letter, the apostle encourages him not to be afraid, but to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He tells him God has not given us the spirit of fear. You may know that 2 Timothy was a prison epistle. Paul wrote it from the Mamertine prison in Rome. And no doubt Timothy was feeling the crunch of increasing pressure, the pressure of persecution from the surrounding culture. And he was afraid that those who had imprisoned Paul would do the same to him, no doubt. So Paul seeks to infuse courage into Timothy by reminding him of his rich heritage, your grandmother and your mother. He reminds him that he's praying for him. The apostle writes, thinking about Timothy in his, dying, in his own dying hour. Usually when people are passing off the scene, they're self-focused. Paul is focused on the continuing cause of Christ and the ministry of the gospel and the people of God. And he writes to encourage Timothy. 
And, note, and notice he charges Timothy in this chapter. I charge thee. Carries an official kind of tone. I charge thee before God. Now to charge somebody means that you have some form of authority, some form of influence. Like a minister would be charged at his ordination. Paul gives Timothy further instructions. I charge thee before God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. That sounds like a serious charge. God's watching. Christ, the judge, is watching. I charge you to do this in your ministry and notice the message of the hour. Preach the word. He tells him because the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. There's coming a time when culture will be such that people will want to hear men preach who will tell them something that will tickle their ears. He says, after their own lusts, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Timothy, in contrast to that, he says, but watch thou in all things, that is, keep your head. And how important it is when the rest of the world is losing its head that we keep ours. Watch thou, that, uh, literally, keep your head in all things, endure afflictions, don't expect an easy ride. The ministry's going to be tough, the Christian life's going to be tough in a world that has turned its back on God and Jesus Christ. He says, you keep doing what you know to do. And what do you know to do, Timothy? Preach the word. Notice he doesn't say preach current events. He doesn't say get your text from the latest news cycle. Now, there's a temptation to do that. I see it in many ministers and certainly in religious circles today. There's a tendency to want to get our message from current events, but he says, Timothy, the word of God is always appropriate. It's the message of the hour. Preach the word. I think that's one of the things people should look for in a church. Is there a consistent biblical fare coming from the pulpit? And that is my greatest joy as a gospel minister is to teach the Bible, to preach the word. You know, this book is an amazing book. There's never been another one like it. It's not just a product of human literature, of man's genius, but it is divinely inspired and divinely preserved. God spoke it. Holy men of old spake as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit so superintended the writing of these biblical writers that the words that they wrote were the very words God would have them to write. So that when you read your Bible, you are hearing a message from God himself. Now that's a very important understanding to maintain. We need to understand that when we open the scriptures, God is speaking to us. You ever wished God would just speak to you? Well, read your Bible. Because when scripture speaks, God speaks. And the greatest need of the hour from ministers is to teach the Bible Read the word, preach the word. I like the fact that you started your worship service, this part of the service today, with a reminder of your verse of the week. 
your scripture verse and your pastor embellished the meaning of God repented himself of Saul being king and what that means. My beloved, we need to grow in our knowledge of the content of scripture and in our understanding of how it applies to our life. Read your Bibles and then come to hear it preached on a regular basis because that's the only thing that will keep your mind in a proper frame in a world where everybody again is losing their head. Preach the word, preach the word, preach the word. It's a good charge to every one of us, ordained ministers like pastors, like Timothy, those who are coming along and are setting out on this lifestyle and it's important for God's people to demand that from their ministry, to expect that from their pulpit, from the pulpits of our churches. Preach the word. You say, well, this book is so antiquated. I mean, how could it possibly relevant, be relevant to a technological age such as we live in today? Well, my friends, you'll be surprised at how up to the minute in its relevance, how contemporary the message of this book is. Tells you about God and heaven and the meaning of life. It tells you about the final end of the devil and the wicked. It explains why things are as they are in this world. It gives basic instruction for human behavior and how to conduct ourselves in every given situation. This book, my beloved, is God's message for the hour. So when everybody else is saying, I don't want to hear what God says. I just want to hear something that would tickle my ears. He says, Timothy, don't succumb to the temptation to compromise. Don't take your text in a way that will please the public. Timothy, you please God, preach the word because that's what people really need. Now, the word of God is always appropriate. At funerals, at weddings, at baptisms, at marriages, at relation, the beginning of relationships, on Sunday by Sunday basis, the word of God is always appropriate. So if you don't know what to say, say, Lord, show me from the word of the message that is needed for this situation. Preach the word. You know, as a preacher, sometimes it's difficult to determine what my subject might be from one Sunday to the next. I know these other brethren can identify, and I try to seek the Lord's guidance, try to seek the Lord's leadership, and ask him to show me what would be appropriate for that hour. We want the message that we preach or bring to be tailor-made to the situation at hand, and only God knows that, right? I couldn't possibly know it. Now, I've made a lot of mistakes in that area. I've chosen to preach on things that I thought, well, that meal should have simmered on the back burner a little longer before I was tried to serve it. And, um, you know, I preached things out of place, out of time. But God's word, again, I say, is always relevant, always appropriate. And we need to have confidence in that fact. What would you think of, well, I was going to say Mickey Mantle. That's going to date me a little bit. Chipper Jones, well, that dates me also, probably. Um, I don't know who the best players are today, but anyway, what would you think of Babe Ruth? 
if he stepped up to the plate with a number two lead pencil in his hands. Now he has all sorts, or he had all sorts of talent, but I'll tell you, he's not gonna get very far if he doesn't have confidence in what he holds in his hand. And so preachers need to have confidence that this book, my friends, speaks to us where we live. Today, if you will hear his voice, you see, the Holy Spirit still speaks through what he's already spoken in the scriptures, and he speaks to you and me. I hope today that when you leave here, you will say, we didn't hear the voice of Brother Lawrence or Brother Goins, but we heard the Lord speak to us today through his word. That's what we want. We want to hear a message from God, the message of the hour, preach the word. But you know, in a more particular sense, there is a message that we're told to preach, a message that we're told to give to others according to their needs. In every hour, I suggest that the gospel minister needs to preach a message that abases the pride of man and exalts the glory of God. And what I want to do for a few moments today is I want to go to several verses of scripture that tell us precisely what to say in each given situation. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 40 and the sixth verse. The voice said cry, the text reads. Now, of course, this is a prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And a voice tells him, I want you to preach. The voice said cry. He's called to this task. The voice said, cry. And John the Baptist asks the question every gospel minister should ask. And he said, what shall I cry? Give me the message, Lord. What's the message for the hour? And here it is. All flesh is grass. And the glory of man is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but... The word of our God shall stand forever. Notice the contrast. You preach that man is weak and frail, but that God's promise, God's covenant, God's word will stand forever. The voice said cry. What shall I cry? Here's the message of the hour. All flesh is grass. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a tendency in human nature, as I've seen it in myself, to think that I'm invincible, that I'm a California redwood, a sequoia. You know, I can stand whatever storm comes my way. It doesn't take too many of life's storms, though, to teach a person that I'm weak and I need help, that I'm not a California redwood, but I'm more like a blade of grass. All flesh is grass. You know, one thing I love about the truth of the Word of God is that it humbles the pride of man. It doesn't flatter us. It doesn't tell us that we're lions and tigers and bears. It calls us sheep. And there's nothing more vulnerable and helpless than a sheep. You ever pretended that you can solve any problem that comes your way? That, you're, that you have an indomitable human spirit, that you have unlimited power, that you are the master of your own fate and the captain of your own soul? Well, my friends, the message of the Bible is all flesh is grass. 
And you know that's true. The grass grows, but it soon fades. The flower of the field fadeth away. This verse teaches the fading glory of man, the frailty of humanity. That's so true, isn't it? You know, I think about where I am today, and I think about what I used to be, what I once was. Now, thank God, I can also think about what I hope to be in the future by the grace of God when I get to heaven, but I think about what I once was, and you you know what my theme song is in life? It's the old gray mare. She ain't what she used to be. You ever feel like that? I was, in my mind at least, quite the athlete at one time. I could jump tall buildings at a single bound. I was fleet of foot. I, you know, had some skills athletically, I suppose. Not enough to earn me any money or to get public accolades and fame, but, you know, I did do still, still hold a school record in track and field at my high school, and the reason is because it was the last year we ran in yards before they switched to meters. <laughs> so I still, my name's still on the board in my alma mater because uh, we have the record in the 440 yard sprint relay, 400 meter relay now. We still hold that school record and I doubt it'll ever be broken. And um, anyway, Every once in a while, I think, I fancy that I can still run as fast as I once did. And I've tried it a few times and have found out that the old gray mare, she ain't what she used to be. (laughs) My voice isn't nearly as resonant. My mind is not nearly as keen and quick and retentive as it once was. The fact is, dear friends, age takes its toll on all of us, doesn't it? The miles we put on the road in life do a number on our strength, our focus, our abilities, our vitality. We see ourselves living examples of the law of entropy, which is the law that everything is wearing out. We're on the downhill grade. You ever feel that way? That I'm not what I once was. All flesh is grass. And it doesn't take long to realize that's what's happening in our lives. Are you as strong as you physically as you once were? Are you as sharp mentally as you once were? Or do you struggle with PTSD? (laughs) I think most of us have a degree of PTSD, don't we? We've been traumatized by life and we're failing, we're faltering, we're mumbling and stumbling and fumbling and bumbling our way to the end. The fact is, dear friends, man is weak and frail. In spite of the VIP message and the humanistic idea that you are, that you can reach for the stars, you can accomplish anything you set your mind to, the fact is, my beloved, that we are all weak. We're grass. And notice how he repeats that. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. But in the midst of the Fading glory of man, notice the persistent glory of God, but the word of our God shall stand forever. God's promise is still just as true today as it ever was. His covenant, his word, he gave his word in the covenant. He commanded the covenant 
before the foundation of the world, I'm telling you, that hasn't changed one iota. The truth of his revealed word in scripture stands forever. Forever, O Lord, says Psalm 119, verse 89. Thy word is settled in heaven. God's word does not change with the changing of circumstances. It's not like the shifting sand. Times and seasons change, but God's truth stays the same in all weathers, at all seasons and in all places. What's the message of the hour when we preach the word? That man is weak and frail and needy and dependent, but God is the solution and the answer to man's problems. That's the message for the hour. What about when you are struggling with fear and discouragement and anxiety? I'm sure if I were to ask for a show of hands here this morning that as to who ever fights worry, anxiety, fear, you would say, I do, Brother Mike. I mean, it seems like popular culture is tailored to generate and to and to feed fear in our hearts. If you watch the news very much, then you're going to see ample reason to be afraid. Whether it's killer bees coming from Africa, moving into your state, or whether it's a, a new virus that has been released, I mean, uh, that has come uh, let loose on Americans or on culture. What, you say, Brother Mike, there's something to be afraid of everywhere I turn. There are dangers aplenty in this world, and I'm sure you would agree with that. And perhaps some of you are growing somewhat disheartened and discouraged. I was once told in my ministry, preach on suffering and you'll never lack for a congregation. Because on every pew, there's at least one broken heart. And of course, I want people to be uh, mentally tough. We want, I want my children to grow up to be uh, you know, to be strong-minded and not to be, you know, not to let everything get them down. Not to expect preferential treatment, VIP treatment in the world. I want my children to, to grow up to uh, be able to handle life's pressures and problems without it getting on top of them. But the fact is that sometimes the troubles of life can mount up, can they not? Uh, in such a, to such a degree that you feel like that I just can't climb out. The chaos is such, the problems that I'm facing, whether it's relational problems, financial pressures, whether it's health concerns, whether it's the age of the problem of age and feebleness extreme, whether it's um, a concern for the future of the church, whether it's, um, you know, social issues that got you, have you down or political machinations, you know, the things that these movers and shakers and influencers in positions of influence when they, you know, make their plans that affect the rest of our lives. And you say, Brother Mike, it's just too much for me. Life is just too complicated and I'm drowning beneath the flood of discouragement. I'm sinking, I'm losing heart. We have a message for that hour, a message for those kind of people. Would you turn to Isaiah 35, verse 4? What's the message of the hour? It comes from the Word. It's essentially and basically that man is weak, all flesh is grass, but the Word of God stands forever, and in particular terms to the 
discouraged and the fearful. Here's the message. Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. Strengthen ye the weak hands. Notice how God encourages his preachers, his prophets, to strengthen the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them who have a fearful heart. Now, I love this. He tells us exactly what to say. You ever faced a situation you thought, well, I just don't know what to say. I'm telling you the Bible, the word of God gives you specific instruction as to what to say in each of these situations. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame man shall leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. He says, when you encounter somebody who's afraid, here's what you need to say. Be strong and fear not. Now you say, now that's not going to do any good. Well, if you're just saying, come on, cheer up, it's not going to do any good. But if you give them a reason for it, you see, there's a difference in just positive thinking and faith in God. We sang the song this morning, have faith. No, that's not the song, have faith in God. There's reason to trust. You see, you have a God who's sovereign, a God who's immutable, a God who's omnipotent, a God who is all wise. You have a God who loved his people with an everlasting love and nothing will ever change that. A God of grace, a God of mercy, a God who, my friends, is faithful to keep his promise. And there's reason in God to trust, to have faith. You know, when I was in high school, my senior year, I played free safety on our varsity football team. And that year, our coach had uh, decided to market uh, for the sake of sports psychology, he was going to try to promote through marketing techniques uh, an optimistic outlook on the season for our team. So he came up with this little motto, I believe, I believe. And he had placards printed and they posted them on the locker room walls and they had banners posted on the you know, mesh fence at the stadium. And we had little I believe stickers on our helmets. And as we exited the locker room ready to play a game, we would all slap the, like Notre Dame football players do, you know, we'd slap the top of the door facing which, where the placard said, I believe, and we would all chant, I believe, I believe, I believe. Well, we went one, eight, and one my senior year. We won one game, lost eight, and tied one. I don't know what it was in which we believed, but whatever it was didn't help us very much. Faith in faith is pretty empty. It's shallow, you know. You say, well, I believe in myself. I've often wondered how that would have served Jonah in the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea in the whale's belly, you know. Come on, Jonah, just believe in yourself. You have within you unlimited human potential. You can reach for the stars. You can solve your problems. You are a little God. Jonah, just believe in yourself. He didn't do that, did he? 
what he did is say, he said, yet once more I will look toward thy holy temple. He didn't look within. He didn't look without. I mean, he's in the bottom of the sea. He doesn't have a cell phone to call a friend. He doesn't have any options available except to look up toward heaven and ask God to have mercy upon him yet once more. And I want to tell you, when you get to the point that you have nowhere to turn, my friends, don't forget to look up. One more time, yet once more. You say, well, I've looked up so many times, then remember the words of Jonah yet one more time. I will look toward thy holy temple because God will never fail you. You see, there's reason. If you're afraid today, say to them who are of a fearful heart, to what shall I cry? That all flesh is grass. Here's your message, preacher. All flesh is grass, but the glory of God endures forever. His word is sure and steadfast. Here's your message, preacher, when the rest of the world doesn't want to hear it, that the word of God is relevant. And here's your message to the fearful and the discouraged and disheartened. Say to them that are of fearful heart, be strong and fear not. Now, that reminds me, that formula of Joshua chapter 1. When God told Joshua, Moses is dead and now you're going to take over where he left off. You know, the fact is, God buries his workmen, but he carries on his work. Moses is dead. You say, I don't think we could make it without brother so-and-so. This pastor was the best we've ever had. This patriarch in our family, when he's gone, I shudder to think what will become of our family. Well, my friends, God buries his workmen, but he has another workman to take their place because his work continues. And in Joshua chapter 1, God says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. What encouragement, what rich encouragement that must have been to Joshua. And then the message was to Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. I wonder today if you can claim that promise personally as your own. God has promised to be with you wherever you go. That, I'm talking to you this morning. Yes, you. You say, Brother Mike, I'm in seat three of row 15, and it doesn't apply to me. It may apply to the first row or to somebody more important or more prominent in the church, but it surely couldn't apply to me. I'm telling you, yes, you, that because of his wonderful grace, the Lord's promised to be with you through thick and thin. So say to them that are afraid, be strong be not afraid, fear not, for behold, here's the reason, your God will come with a vengeance. And I love the military imagery in the Bible as it's applied to our God. God, my friends, is the great conquering king, and he promises to do battle on behalf of his people. And he will come with a vengeance, he will come with purpose, he will come with a retribution to the wicked, even God with a recompense. That means he's going to repay your enemies. He will come and save you. That's precisely the message Paul brings to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 when he says that you're being persecuted for your faith. Now we're just beginning to see what persecution's like in our country. Most, you and I have been blessed to live in the Bible Belt and in a day when Jesus Christ was popular. But you know, in the Bible, Jesus Christ, and in Bible times, Jesus was a controversial figure. 
I mean, everybody didn't love him. Everybody didn't love Paul. In fact, Paul was beheaded. All of the original apostles of Jesus, except for John, died a very, a very, uh, a very serious kind of death. I mean, at the hands of the government of the day, they they uh, they really struggled. And Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, brethren, in Second Thessalonians chapter one. God is going to recompense. He's going to repay tribulation to those that trouble you. To the troublers, God's going to repay trouble to the troublers. And to you who are troubled, what about the troublees? What about the people who are the victims of the world's oppression? And I want to tell you, I want to remind you, this Christianity is not intended to be popular in this fallen world. The hymn writer asked the question, is this vile world a friend to grace? You answer, is it? Does, it? does this world make it easy to be godly and to live close to the Lord? No, it distracts us on every hand, doesn't it? I'm telling you, dear friends, justice will be served one day. The scales of justice will be balanced at the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's a righteous thing with God to repay tribulation to those that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, what are we going to get? rest with us says the apostle paul that is you're going to rest with the saints of god from all ages past we're going to all be together rest with us when the lord jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels here's the message to those that are afraid right now your god is coming with a vengeance even god with a recompense He's going to set the record straight, and he's going to come and save you, deliver you. And I want to tell you, dear friends, that happy day when Jesus comes back will be the greatest deliverance of all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18 tells us, likewise, what to say in the hour of sorrow. He says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. I want to tell you the brightest star on the Christian horizon is the second coming of Jesus Christ. I want to see revival in our churches, and I think it's possible on a local level. I want, I'd love to see America turn back to God. I don't know if that's realistic. We ought to pray about it. God's able. God's able, but uh, I don't know that it's even biblical. I don't know that the Bible tells us that there will be a worldwide revival before the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'm not a post-millennialist in other words but uh, I do think that revival is possible on a local level local churches can see in gathering and growth and that's what I long for I long to see Bethel Church here and I know your pastor does revived where there is new interest new zeal new enthusiasm people are being convicted of sin Jesus Christ is his presence is palpable it can be felt in your midst when you meet to worship. The hymns are full of joy and they speak to your experience of preaching's powerful. And you say, my, the Lord is at work in this place. I long to see it where I try to serve. And in, among our people across this country, my friends, we ought to pray for revival. Yet the scriptures tell us that um, the brightest star on the horizon for the future is not a re the repentance of our nation turning back to God 
That would be wonderful, but that's not even the brightest. The revival of our local churches, oh, how we long for that, but that's not even the brightest star. I'll tell you, the brightest star on the horizon of the future is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming again. My beloved, I want to tell you, when he descends from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, that's interesting, there will still be people alive when Jesus comes back. Everybody's not going to die. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Watch the next verse. Here's what you need to say to people in their sorrow, in their sadness, in their bereavement. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. What's the message of the hour? Preach the word. What is that word? All flesh is grass, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. What about when people are afraid? You say to them, don't be afraid. Be strong, because God is coming with a vengeance, even with a recompense. He's coming to save you. And what does that look like precisely? It, it is this passage, the Lord himself is coming with a shout. Notice he's not sending a proxy. He's not sending Gabriel or Michael to come get us. Jesus Christ is coming himself to claim what he purchased on the cross. And when he comes, every eye will see him, even those that pierced him. His coming will not be local and and partial, it'll be universal and visible. It will be like the lightning shines out of one end of heaven to the other. That is, the coming of Jesus will not be secret. It will not be local. You won't have to read about it in the Jerusalem Post or in the New York Times or in the Washington Post. My friends, you, can, you will see it with your own eyes. I, I can just picture it. I can picture the freeways heavy with traffic on the morning of the resurrection, people going about their activities in regular routine. You know, they arose from bed that morning, got ready and got their cup of coffee and their Pop-Tarts and they've gotten in the car and they're headed off to work. And suddenly the freeways come to a screeching halt. The people that are in the, on their farms and their tractors will suddenly be brought, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be brought to be still. And every eye will look up because something will get our attention that will be the most stupendous event that's ever taken place in human history. Jesus Christ is visiting this earth again, but this time not as a little babe in Bethlehem's manger, but as the conquering warrior hero king riding upon a great white horse with the hosts of heaven in his train. And he's coming, my friends, to finally vanquish every enemy against righteousness and against God and against his people. He will tread under his feet the last enemy, even death. And when he comes again, we'll be caught up together. The redeemed will be caught up together and reunited in that happy family reunion in heaven and when he comes, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And by the way, that's what makes heaven glorious, is that we'll be with Jesus. We'll be like Jesus. That's wonderful to anticipate. You will be like Jesus Christ so far as being sinless, totally righteous, totally holy. 
It's mind-boggling. And we will see Jesus. I love that verse in John 17, 24. Father, I will that those whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. You will behold his glory. You know, that's what Moses wanted to see. Lord, show me thy glory. Exodus 33. And the Lord said, no, you can't tolerate it. I'll put you in a cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand. I'll pass by and you'll see the afterglow like the tail of a comet. You'll see the glory that trails after. But my face shall not be seen. You will look upon the face of the one who loved you from all eternity past and gave his own life blood to redeem you. You and I, my friends, will see him face to face. Isn't that mind-blowing and mind-boggling? You say, well, I'm afraid I'll be way back in the back of the room and I'm short of stature anyway and I won't be able to see Jesus, you know, on the stage. I'll have to look around people's shoulders and look, you know, and I'm afraid that I'll say, would you please, you know, crouch down so I can see him. No, my friends, it'll be up close and personal when you see Jesus. You say, explain that to me, preacher. I can't. Never been there. <laughs> but I have a message for this hour. If you're full of sorrow and sadness, maybe you've lost a loved one recently. Maybe you've bid farewell to the dearest on earth to you. You've laid to rest your life mate or perhaps your loving parent or maybe a child. And you say, Brother Goins, nobody knows the sorrow I've seen in my life. It, it hurts in an incredible way. I can't even verbalize it. It is pain beyond what I ever thought I would experience and I dreaded such an experience, but it's happened to me. And Brother Goins, I don't know how I can keep going. Well, here's my, the message for the hour. Comfort one another with these words. What words? That the Lord Jesus is coming back. And my friends, he's going to vanquish every foe. All of your enemies are going to be destroyed. Even death. Now, do you know any enemy that is more persistent than death. I hate it. And I use that word purposefully. I despise death. It is not what God intended. Somebody says, well, it's just death is, you know, something that, you know, it's just part of life. No, death is the opposite of life. God did not intend death as part of the world he created. Death is the result of sin's entrance into this world. The wages of sin is death. And the Bible speaks of it as the king of terrors. And it speaks of it, my friends, as the last enemy. The last enemy. It's an enemy. It's not a friend. Now, we like to try to, you know, try to dress it up so that it's not as harsh a reality as we think. And we call it a celebration of life service instead of a funeral. Understand. We try to re, you know change. You try to rebrand it for marketing purposes so that it's a little more acceptable. We we say let's just focus on the life because we can't. We don't have an answer to the death part of it. So let's focus on the life. Well, life needs to be celebrated, especially if it was lived properly and in a godly way. But uh, death, my friends, the Bible faces death head on. The Bible says that death is an enemy. I despise it. But you know it's coming in all of our lives if Jesus tarries. 
The thing about the true gospel is it has an answer for your biggest enemy, death. We like to bring in flowers so that it doesn't smell like death, but it's more acceptable, you know, and we sing pretty songs, and I know, I understand all of that. There's, a, there's comfort to be drawn from all of that. Even, even cemeteries like to dress themselves up with sweet names, don't they? You know, this is a garden. I'll tell you about one who was in a garden one time, the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a garden tomb, but he rose from that tomb. And the ultimate paradise is not a cemetery. And the ultimate paradise, my friends, is heaven, is that heavenly world. The, the bliss of glory divine. Jesus is coming again, and when he comes, he's going to gather his people together in that upper and better world, and there is comfort in using those words when talking to somebody who's lost a loved one. You ever have friends that lose loved ones? Don't hesitate to say, well, you know, this isn't the end of the story. Death is not the end for the child of God. But as soon as the eyes of the body close in death, the eyes of the soul at that very instant awaken in the presence of Jesus Christ to behold him in all his glory, waiting for the morning of the resurrection when the body will be raised and changed and reunited with the disembodied soul and spirit that's gone on to glory and soul, body, and spirit will be perfectly holy in the presence of the redeemed and the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever with personal communion and fellowship with him, and you will be perfectly healed when you get to heaven. Isn't that wonderful to think of perfect healing? You have any aches and pains, any problems, any limps, any handicap? I'm telling you, you will be perfectly healed when you get to heaven. What a wonderful prospect it is to think about what is awaiting us. My beloved, Though that's the message for the hour. You say it's not only appropriate, I want to say it's not only appropriate for the hour of a memorial service, it's appropriate for God's people to hear and to meditate on on a frequent basis because this world, we're born to die. We're headed that direction. It's a rude awakening. I know we like to put it off as long as we can and not to think about it, but my beloved, here's the message for the fearful, the sorrowful, and the discouraged comfort one another with these words. One more verse, Job twenty-two twenty-nine. 29. Uh, actually, two more verses. Job twenty-two twenty-nine. When men are cast down, then thou shalt say. Don't you love these verses in the Bible that tells you exactly what to say? Timothy, you preach the word. What, what should I preach? Where can I get my sermons? From the internet? <laughs> there are plenty to be had there. No, you... You, you read your Bible and meditate on it and ask God to show you a verse and, to, and you meditate on it and you build your message and you try to explain it to people and apply it to their lives and pray that God would bless it through his Holy Spirit to be useful. Timothy, you keep preaching this book. What does the book say? It basically says all flesh is grass and the word of God is permanent. And what does it say specifically to the frightened it says, don't be afraid because God's coming. To the sorrowful and the brokenhearted and the grieving, Jesus Christ is going to gather us all together in a happy family reunion, never to part again. And what else does it say when people are discouraged and depressed? When men are cast down, 
then thou shalt say there is lifting up. There's hope in God. Now I want to tell you today, dear friends, as long as God's on his throne, there's not such a thing as a hopeless situation. He's the God of hope, according to Romans 15, 13. There is hope in God. Now you know what hope is in the Bible. It's not a flimsy wish. It's a bright, optimistic outlook on the future. But it's not a result of just mere positive thinking. Hope is rooted in God. The reason I can have a bright outlook, not a pessimistic outlook on the future, but an optimistic outlook on the future is because God is the God of hope. As long as he's on the throne, as long as his power's intact, as long as the devil is going to be judged, as long as I don't get the news that God has been deposed and dethroned and kicked out of glory and the devil's taken over, then I have reason to keep hoping. I have hope for my family today. I have hope for my marriage. I have hope for the church. I have hope for our country. My beloved, I'm not going to give up hope in any part of this world, but you know my hope's not confined to this world. For if in this life only we have hope in God, we're of all men most miserable. My hope goes beyond the veil of tears into a world where all ills will be resolved, all pains will be diminished, all problems will be solved. My hope goes into the veil, whether the forerunner has already entered for us, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ, my friends, is coming back. And until then, here's what you and I need to say to those who are depressed, downhearted, downtrodden. There is lifting up. You say, well, that sounds like just pie in the sky by and by. No, it's saying in God, there's reason to be hopeful. Don't be discouraged. We sing the song sometimes that says we should never be discouraged. Have you ever thought about that? You think, man, that's not realistic. What do you mean never be? Because you have a reason to trust God. Take it to the Lord in prayer. You have a resource. So don't be discouraged. You have a resource at your disposal. Cast your burden on the Lord. Another hymn writer says, sometimes I feel discouraged and think my life in vain. I'm tempted then to murmur and of my lot complain. But when I think of Jesus, you see, there's the, that's the, there's the rub. That's the issue. What you're, what you're thinking about. What are you looking at? What is your, what's on your mind? So, but when I think of Jesus and all he's done for me, then I cry, O rock of ages, hide thou me. There's the solution to your discouragement. One last verse, Isaiah 3.10. Isaiah chapter 3 describes a day of apostasy that is a day of backsliddenness a day of wickedness a day of moral chaos and insanity much like the world that we're living in today listen to a few of these verses Isaiah chapter 3 God says I will take away the mighty man the man of war the judge the prophet the prudent, the ancient, the captain of 50, the honorable man, the counselor, the cunning artificer, and the eloquent orator, and I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. This is a passage in which God is saying, I'm not happy with the way that they're living. And the people shall be oppressed, every one by one another. I mean, everywhere you go, you're afraid somebody's going to get mad at you. And every one by his neighbor the child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient and the base against the honorable. 
He says in verse 8, for Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen. I mean, here's a society in free fall, moral free fall, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord. Doesn't that sound like modern America? To provoke the eyes of his glory, they show of their countenance, the show of their countenance doth witness against them. They're proud. And they declare their sin as Sodom. They're proud of their sins and they talk about what a wonderful thing it is. I tell you what, talk about a verse that's up to the minute and it's relevant. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. He's describing in Isaiah chapter 3 a society that's characterized by moral insanity. That's a reprobate mind. Romans chapter 1, reprobates a moral category. Mind is your thinking. Moral insanity. Is our society morally insane today? Good is bad and bad is good. Light is dark and dark is light. You know, up is down and down is up. And sweet is bitter and bitter is sweet. Our society is, has got its value system upside down. It's morally insane. It's like people can't even think anymore. It's like... They don't even understand right from wrong. Our society, my beloved, is in trouble. Listen to the next verse, Isaiah 3.10. When this is the situation in a day of moral chaos like we're living in today, say ye to the, say ye to the righteous. He gives us instruction exactly what to say. That it shall be well with him. For they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him. For the reward of his hand shall be given him. What should you say to God's people in an hour of apostasy, in a day of chaos and moral insanity? You tell them that it's going to get better. It's going to be okay by and by. You say, well, Brother Mike, that's all well and good, but I need some help right now. Well, here's the wonderful truth, my beloved. It shall be well in the future. And there is tremendous comfort in that fact. But it's also possible for you and me to say it is well with my soul right now. You can have peace in your own heart as long as you know that heaven is real and God is true. When God is your portion, when heaven is your home and it's real to you and you say, well, I know that life in this world is never intended to be permanent and that it's just a blip on the radar screen anyway and you know, I'll forget all about the troubles here with, after just 10 seconds in heaven. That's how you can say it as well with my soul right now. It's going to be okay, my friends. I, I promise you, it shall be well with the righteous. You say, well, how do you get righteous? Well, Jesus made you righteous at the cross. The imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And to all that Jesus represented, it's going to get better. It's going to be okay. And after just 10 seconds in heaven, you and I will be ashamed we ever complained. Have you ever planned to go somewhere and you got there after long planning and significant expenditure of money? And you got there and you said, hey, sort of anticlimactic. It's not what I thought it would be. It just doesn't live up to its billing. <laughs> you ever done that? That was my experience at Dizzy World, by the way. <laughs> you know, I got there and... I was so excited to go to Disney World, and I was so disappointed to find out that Mickey Mouse had the day off that day. <laughs> and uh, Goofy was there, but I didn't want to see Goofy. I wanted to see Mickey Mouse. And 
when I did see Goofy, he was, it was evident, he was a, he was a person in a costume. I wanted to see the Goofy I'd seen on TV, you know, the Mickey Mouse. The fact is that nothing that this world promises really turns out to be as fulfilling as you thought it would be. See, Brother Mike, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii. Well, I was in Hawaii one time. The plane I was on laid over in Hawaii, and I was sitting next to the cargo exit door, and they opened it, and I saw a sign that said, Welcome to Honolulu. And uh, around the sign was some, you know, some uh, vegetation. And then I looked down outside the airplane, and there was asphalt, the tarmac. And that's, that was my one and only time to be in Hawaii. Now, if you've gotten to go and you say, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, I'm happy for you. I'd like to go sometime, but I may never get there. But you know, after I get to heaven, I'll forget all about never getting to go to Hawaii. Because that's the real paradise. That's the real paradise. And you won't ever think what, you won't bemoan your plight when you get to heaven and say, you know, I never did get to go to Europe or to Hawaii. Heaven will resolve all your problems, all your worries. After just 10 seconds in heaven, you'll be ashamed that you ever complained and you'll never get there and say, well, it's just not quite what Brother Ronald said that it was going to be. He talked it up just like preachers do. He exaggerated the glory of heaven. No, you'll say he didn't have a clue what he was talking about. It's so much better than I ever, ever thought that it would be. Say to the righteous, here's the message of the hour. It's going to be okay. If you believe that, it can be okay with your soul right now, my beloved. Again, thank you for your love and hospitality this weekend. It's been a joy to worship with you. May God use some of our efforts to the glory of his name and to the edification of your spiritual lives. God bless.